When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do something team-specific this week, and the perfect thing popped up with the Kyle Korver trade and the rumors with Paul Millsap, and to talk to somebody who has never been on Real Jam Radio before, but who I've enjoyed interacting with on Twitter for a while, and that's Kale Chenard, who is a writer for the Atlanta Hawks and also does his own podcast, ATL in 29, and we talk about both of those things, progress reports on a lot of the other Hawks players. They have so much talent on this team and the impact of the Corver trade, where he thinks this is going. I learned a lot about Paul Millsap, actually, from this. I, I really did enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by a new sponsor, Movement Watches. They're absolutely excellent. You can go to mvmtwatches.com slash realgm and get 15% off your first order. And also, our good friends at Audible. Go to www.audible.com slash try now, and you can get a free audiobook with a trial subscription. And the conversation with, with Kale runs about an hour. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much for taking the time. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I've, I've been on with Nate a couple of times, and my biggest lament on those is that I didn't get to talk to you. Yeah, it's it's the nature of, of, of how we do that. We did some we did some three person ones early on and it can be hard to navigate. But I like to use this platform to go a little bit more in depth on a on a single team. And I find the Hawks fascinating for a couple of reasons and we're gonna go in a lot of directions on this, but the big picture story here that, that I just find fascinating is that they traded Kyle Corver more symbolic at this point, maybe than than on the basketball court relevant. But while all that and the rumors with Paul Millsap and everything else were going on, the Atlanta Hawks have not lost a game since the day after Christmas. That's weird. I mean, it it, it seems to me like earlier in the season they lost some games that they probably shouldn't have lost. They had some schedule losses when they made the West Coast trip. They played Golden State on the fifth game in seven nights or something like that. And I think that stole their legs a little bit. And so they ended up losing games to some sub 500 teams that they really shouldn't have lost. Now with fresh legs, you know, they're a pretty good team and they just went through a stretch of the schedule that was pretty abysmal. They had a four game road trip that took them through places like Dallas and Brooklyn. And those were games that they should have won. They might've lost some of those earlier in the season in December because the schedule was so crazy then, and it's really just been much friendlier with more space between games, fewer games, and just games against easier teams. This time has also transformed it. The Hawks have gone through a couple iterations, and correct me if I missed one, but they were really strong at the beginning of the year, had had that nice stretch, and then they fell off with that road trip that you talked about, and it looked like they became maybe less likely, like less likely to make the playoffs than to make them. And then now they're more in the range of comfortable playoff team, assuming that they keep it relatively together. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I didn't really believe that they were going to fall out of the playoff picture. I mean, I the thing that bothered me or the thing that would have concerned me as far as getting into the playoffs was whether or not they decided to to blow up the team. You know, the, just the timing, the fact that they had their worst stretch of the season or their worst schedule stretch of the ski season early in the season, you know, kind of made it so that you know, they were going to take some lumps early. And, you know, if that pushed their schedule in a direction that took them to a place where they might say, hmm, maybe this team isn't as good as we thought, that that was going to cause them some trouble. But I, I think they're a better team than the one that, you know, struggled when they had that brutal West Coast trip. They're not a team that's going to win seven games in a row like they have over the past couple of weeks either. But there's there's some sort of happy medium that, that puts them definitely in the playoff picture. It's a good way of putting it, and there is a lot of latitude in the East considering that the, there's this just massive teams that are all about the same level, and the Hawks have primarily made this progress with being a strong defensive team. They're fifth in defense when we're recording this, and I believe they're in the 
you know, the low 20s, so like 21, 22 in offense. And a lot of that centers around Dwight Howard, who was a question mark because of all of what happened in Houston the last couple of years on the positive end and the negative end. I've been impressed with how he's looked. How have you been? I've been really impressed. You know, he doesn't appear to have any sort of physical ailments. I know there was a lot of talk about, you know, back injuries and things like that the past couple of seasons. He's had looked he has looked terrific. He's he's played like a young player with fresh legs. He's dominated the glass, you know, at, at one point last night, I think at halftime, he had 12 rebounds and Brook Lopez had zero. I mean, he he was that dominant on the glass. So, you know, he's looked really really strong and I I think part of the struggles that the Hawks have had you know, early in the season, kind of go a little bit to incorporating Dwight. I was talking to uh, Chris Willis of Peachtree Hoops last night, and I, I put it this way, you know, if you look at the team from two years ago, the identity of that team was really centered on the pass. They were, you know, if not the best passing team, the second best passing team behind Golden State. They really had this identity of, of sharing the ball and, you know, zipping it around the court to to get, you know, sort of optimal offense. And then, you know, last season happened, and I think it was kind of a transition year to where they are this season, which is their identity isn't really about the pass anymore. It's about defense. They really should be a top five defensive team when everything's said and done this year, maybe better. The combination of Dwight and Paul Millsap is a really explosive defensive combination. Earlier in the season, I want to say like maybe late October, I, we, we were talking to Mike Budenholzer. And it was probably about 10 days since Paul Millsap had recovered to the point that he was doing things with the team. And, you know, we were talking about the combination of how Dwight looked more comfortable playing with, you know, Mike Muscala, Mike Scott, players like that who stretched the floor a little bit, whereas the combination of Millsap and, and Howard hadn't really looked that great up to that point. And he he kind of paused, and when he finished, he said something like, but I think the combination of Dwight and Paul can be really explosive defensively. And I think we've really seen that over the past month. They did not do great things early in the season. I think they struggled more on offense than on defense. But now that they've got the offensive side together, it makes the defense look that much better when those two are on the floor together. Dwight and Al Horford are are just so incredibly different as talented centers, I would say they're one, two in the East in either order. I mean, you can make a credible argument just depending on what your personal preference is, but, and they're both good in somewhat, you know, like kind of simple, if you want to do the broad strokes, like they're both good defenders. They're just good defenders in very different ways. And then offensively, they're completely different roles. And it's not surprising, especially considering Millsap was dealing with some physical issues that it took a while to make that adjustment. Right. And in terms of, of defense, you, you're right that, that Horford and Howard are both excellent defensively. But, you know, for Horford, it was a case of, you know, him being outstanding at, at blitzing the pick and rolls of, you know, getting his hands up and, you know, trapping people on the perimeter and things like that. Whereas for Howard, you know, his strength is inside, you know, protecting the rim, bodying people away from the rim. And, you know, one of the adjustments that Dwight has had to make, because the Hawks still like to blitz a lot of pick and rolls, is he's had to adjust to, you know, defending on the perimeter. You know, the, the league has gotten to a point where we have more centers doing things 15 feet from the hoop, you know, out beyond the three-point line. And so Dwight has had to, to adjust to guarding these types of players in a system where the Hawks are being very aggressive on the perimeter. And he seemed a little bit reticent to do that in the first month or so, and you can see him starting to get into a comfort level where he's not as good as Horford was at that particular thing, but he's such a good defender in the other ways that even if he gets to being adequate at that, he's going to be terrific. The other element, and this ties in, it's not even really another element, that Dwight brings, which is just massive for the Hawks, is rebounding. The Hawks, the last couple of years, have been bottom 10 or so in, in defensive rebounding. It's kind of one of their their few weaknesses on that end with that great group that they had together. And now they're on the precipice of being top 10 in both offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding. And a lot of that is on Dwight, who has been, I think, I think he's sixth in defensive rebounding and number one overall in offensive rebounding. Yeah, he's been fantastic as an offensive rebounder. It's, it's routine for him to get five offensive rebounds a game, which is really sort of 
you know, Moses Malone, like he's, He's just dominated the offensive class. And mentioning sort of the identity of the team, you know, two years ago, if they were the pass-first team, and, and now if they're the defense-first team, you know, last year they were sort of in the middle. They had this great defensive team, but it was at times just mind-numbingly uh, inefficient because they would play such great defense and then they couldn't secure a rebound. And so they would have to, you know, just scratch and claw and exert so much effort trying to play this very aggressive style of defense and play it multiple times because once they forced a team to miss, you know, they were only getting the rebound, you know, 70% of the time and and they'd have to play it all over again so much of the time. It's been fascinating to see the Celtics struggle now with basically the same thing. Horford, spectacular defender, and also just with the choices that Boston has made at power forward, it kind of exacerbates the issue even more than, than Atlanta did. And you know, Boston has a good defense and not as amazing as they were last year, but they're dealing with the issue of, you know, having a possession, get it, having good first shot defense, and then having to figure out how to do it all over again. Yeah, the two teams play Friday, and I'm really interested to see how that pairs up. I mean, the funny thing about Boston is, you know, if you eliminate Cleveland from the Eastern Conference playoff picture, I think Boston could win playing that style of basketball. But you know, seeing as what happened to the Hawks the last couple of years and seeing it up close, I kind of wonder, you know, can they play the way that they play and match up with Cleveland and expect to win? And I I don't know that they can. It seems like they're repeating history's mistakes where the history has been done by the Hawks already. I also worry about Boston's offense in that sort of a circumstance because they're so reliant on Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah is incredible. He's having the best year of his career and is has been the engine for a remarkable Boston season. But Cleveland can do a pretty good job of shutting that down. Like there's just the way that their defense works. They can a single threat is a lot easier for them to manage than multiple threats, and they even did that in the finals to great effect. So that is a challenge for them. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about the newest sponsor of Real Jam Radio, Movement Watches. I'm very excited to have Movement as a part of this because I'm a big fan of their products. I have one myself and absolutely love it. And part of also what I love about Movement Watches is really the story. So it started out as two college students that were really into fashion, into stylish things, but couldn't afford it. And so, unlike me, they have a lot more mechanical talent, and they decided to start their own watch company. And at first blush, you might think that that would lead them to something that would be lesser quality or something like that, but how they chose to approach this is something I genuinely admire, which is that they found another spot in the process that was driving up costs, and that was the middlemen and a retail markup. And so they are able to sell an an incredibly high-quality watch for just, they started just $95. And if you want to compare it to a department store, it's probably about 400 or 500 And they do that, again, not by scrimping in quality in any way, shape, or form. They do it by taking out all of those other things that drive up price and don't give you a better watch. I personally have one. It's Rose Gold in the 40 series. Absolutely beautiful timepiece. As some of you might guess, I'm very picky with these sorts of things, and I absolutely love my movement watch. It's eye-catching, it's very comfortable, and it's it's beautiful. So you can check it out for yourself. It's movementwatches.com, and that's M-V-M-T, watches.com, slash RealGM, and you get 15% off today. That includes free shipping and free returns. You can check it out. They have a, a ton of really nice options. You can look at the faces, the bands, numerous other things. And again, if you go to M-V-M-T, watches.com, slash RealGM, you get 15% off your order, and again, that includes free shipping and free returns. I had a lot of fun going through and just looking at all of the beautiful options. While I enjoy a good watch, it is not something I have spent a ton of time looking at and just seeing the amazing craftsmanship and work on it, and then seeing the finalized product when I when I received it was thrilling. It was really exciting, and I think you'll feel the same way. So one more time, mvmtwatches.com slash realgm. Before we get on to a couple of the other Hawks things, we might as well get to the big story of last week, which was trading Kyle Korver. And there are a lot of different components of this. I'd like to get into a few of them. But one that I think has been lost to a lot of the national viewership, listenership of the NBA is that 
Kyle Korver, as as great as he is, and as as big of an impact as he has had for the Hawks as a franchise over the last was five years or so, he has not had the same outsized role, particularly this year with them, that he had say two years ago when he was an All Star. So I think when you're looking for why exactly it didn't work as well with Korver this season as it has in past seasons, I think you have to start with the fact that you know they were incorporating Dwight Howard, and that changed the flow of their offense. By putting Howard in there, the spacing changed, the passing changed, the angles of the passes changed. You know, it really changed a lot of what they did on offense. And the first couple of months of the season, the Hawks weren't a great passing team as they had been in previous seasons. They they racked up some assists, but at the same time, they turned the ball over a lot. And at times, it just got a little bit clunky. And the passes, even where they were getting to the right people, maybe didn't get to them as cleanly or as crisply as they would have in previous seasons. And for Korver, you know, he's one of those people who thrives on just kind of continuing to run, continuing to move, continuing to curl around screens. And in past years, when he could get open for, you know, a fraction of a second, the ball would get there in perfect timing and he would be able to get the shots that he needed. This season, putting in Schroeder as a starter, putting in Howard, the passing just wasn't as good as it had been in previous seasons. And for a person like Korver, that really made a difference. And so, you know, if you look at Korver over the past few seasons, he's been one of the the top players in terms of plus-minus rating. Last season, after the All-Star break, he had the best plus-minus rating in the Eastern Conference. And this season, he's been a net negative. And if you look at some of the lineups that he was in, including the lineup that the Hawks tried as their starting lineup, you know, there were some some pretty big negatives that included Korver. And so I think that even though he shot the ball well, you know, the shots that he's taken, he's made good percentages from all over the floor, you know, long twos, threes, things like that. But I don't think he got them in the same volume. And I think teams were able to guard him with a little bit less defensive attention than they might have in the past, just because the offense didn't have the same crisp spaced flow to it. And then for Corver, I think another part of why he struggled is, is defense. You know, he's still a really big defender, which I think helps as, as a two guard or as a small forward. He's still really great with his hands. So if he's underneath the basket and somebody's holding the ball in their hands, there's like a 60% chance he's going to paw it and knock it loose. But when he's guarding in space, I don't think he had the same the same zip that he had in previous seasons. He was able to keep defenders in, in front of him, but at the same time, they were still able to get off a lot of shots. And I think defensively, they didn't have the same disruptive presence with him that they had without him when they played guys like Bazemore and Cephalosha. That all makes sense and ties into why the concerns about Corver on the Hawks long term, if we can call it that, were more structural because the players that changed over, Dennis Schroeder and Dwight Howard replacing Teague and and Al Horford in the starting lineup, if we were to say anyone was going to stay, it's probably those guys. They were just both recently signed and re-signed respectively. If the offense was lacking that crispness, lacking that flow, at least to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think that it was unlikely that that, was, that they were going to recapture that magic and maximize Corver's destructive potential on offense. Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I think that you look at the Hawks, I think they've gotten to be a much better passing team. In terms of, you know, why they were so good early in the season, that 9-2 and two start, it's funny because that 9-2 and two start was largely a product of the starters kind of playing even, and then a bench unit featuring Paul Millsap and a bunch of substitutes. That was the crisp lineup that was sort of blowing teams away in that 9-2 and two start. So even though they didn't have that early in the season, they're getting to a point where now it's their starting lineup that is the one that's really pushing them and propelling them. And, you know, Corver might have fit in that, but at the same time, you know, what's really making that starting unit as good as it is right now is that on defense, their defensive rating is like an 85 for the season. So the unit of Schroeder, Bazemore, Cephalosha, Millsap, and Howard has just been gangbusters defensively. Wow, that's incredible, but also makes sense when you think about the personnel, because those guys are active, they can switch a little bit, but they're also a lot of intelligent defenders and good rebounding. So you, you get a lot of, you touch a lot of the bases defensively with that group. You really do, yeah, I agree. And And to go with that, Looking at that starting lineup, I think the one player who hasn't stood out has been Bazemore. He's been dealing with some 
some stuff with his right knee. There was a point of the season where he sat out a week because that knee was bothering him. So it's been a little bit of a struggle for Bazemore. But that same lineup with Hardaway in place of Bazemore has has also been stout defensively and a little bit better offensively. So I think that core of Schroeder and the front court, regardless of who you put in a two guard, has really been good for the Hawks. And the one exception then is, is Corver. I think that same lineup with Corver struggled a bit. That makes sense. And at the same time as we're talking about how his role has been minimized, Corver has an incredible significance for this franchise, even though he has changed teams a couple of times in his career. And trading him, even if his role was different and was probably always going to be different, is still hard for the team, for the franchise and everything else, especially when you consider all of the other uncertainty that is at least temporarily around this team. Yeah, he was... It goes to a couple of things. I, I think part of it is that he's a very unique player. Um, so when you when it comes to sort of looking at the Hawks and saying, you know, what is it that the Hawks are and what is it that the Hawks have, you know, the one thing that, that people identify with, whether it's a casual fan or just a general NBA fan, is they, they identify with the fact that, you know, Corver can curl around a screen and pull up from 28 feet. That stands out. They see that. And so that, that became a little bit of the Hawks' identity. And, you know, for people in Atlanta... The Hawks game experience is is a good one, but it's not one where it's 18,000 people every night screaming their head off. But at the same time, you know, if you go to a Hawks game, the one moment of sort of breathless anticipation is when Corver, you know, is a tenth of a second from having the ball hit his hands because everybody knows what he's going to do with it. And so you can kind of feel that sort of collective inhale and that really meant something, I think, to the Hawks fans. That was sort of the exciting part of watching the games for the casual fan. And then, you know, one other part that goes with that is he was the longest tenured Hawk. You know, he and Mike Scott basically got here at the same time uh, in the same summer. And so he really became sort of the, the face of the franchise, especially after Al Horford left. You know, so it was one of those two who you really would have said, okay, that's that's the key guy for the Hawks. That's who the Hawks are. And once Horford left, that, that mantle shifted to Corver, and, and now he's gone. So it's a little bit of a transition period in terms of, you know, marketing and fan identity and things like that. And it puts not a capstone because they still could make more moves and, and very well might, but it marks a, a real change from the success, the high point of two years ago when they were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference to have four of the five players that were a part of that starting lineup be on different teams now is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's that whole season, you know, just looking back on it, how crazy it is, because you you look at that and it was a team that thrived and put together this unbelievable season. But at the same time, you know, Millsap was a second round pick. Corver was a second round pick. Teague, you know, was a mid to late first rounder, I think. And so they had this collection of older guys and unha- I want to say unheralded isn't the right word, but, you know, they had this collection of guys that wasn't let's say alpha dogs, guys that sort of stood out from a young age. And it was older too. And so you looked at it and when you see them win 60 wins, or you see them collect 60 wins, but do it with these guys that are 30 years old, you know, or quickly getting to 30 years old, you knew it had this sort of limited shelf life. I'm fascinated to see what what happens to Corver this summer because he's a guy who, you know, for a long part of his career, wasn't a starter. He wasn't a starter until he got to Atlanta. He hasn't made a terrific amount of money. He's 35 years old, soon to be 36. What are teams going to offer him? I'm genuinely perplexed. And at the same time, I have no idea. You know, you don't see it very often, but could he come back to Atlanta? I have no idea. I know that, you know, he's got family here. He's kind of set down roots here. They're building the P3 complex adjacent to the practice facility. And I think that would be something that that would entice him. I don't know if the Hawks want him back or have a need for him if they develop their young wings, but at the same time, he's he's a positive locker room presence. He's a veteran. He spent a lot of time working on sh- shooting mechanics and things like that with young players like Dennis Schroeder. I have no idea what's going to happen, and I think a lot of it depends on what happens to Cleveland in, in the postseason. Agreed. Cleveland's success at that point is going to be a huge factor in all of this, and also, what Corver prioritizes, because there might be somebody who throws an irresponsible amount of money at him, but it also might be a bad situation. You know, like th- those sorts of things can happen in, in this Absolutely. market, especially considering there will be a, a more limited supply of teams. 
just because this isn't 2016 where everyone's going to have money and throwing it at basically every player on, on the free agent market. So he might have a narrower set and might be less money on a good team. Maybe the years will be a variant. And then also personal comfort. He does, from what I know, seem like somebody who values that, who values being in the right situation, the comfort with the city and the team and his role. So he'll have to make a a complicated decision for the first time in a while. Agreed. And you can say the same thing about Millsap. You know, he has he has roots here. You look at what does he like? I mean, I think he likes to play golf. I think he might not be the person who wants, you know, let's say the New York media shining down on him. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, what he prioritizes. I know he has a a couple of kids. He has more than a couple of kids, but he has two that are school age. So, you know, I don't know how much he values staying here or staying close to Louisiana. I think he has family in the Atlanta area. I don't know if he's going to be comfortable here or if he wants to go somewhere else. It's going to be an interesting uh, it's going to be an interesting summer. The Hawks also have to deal with this fascinating dynamic that almost no other franchise does that almost all of the best players that they've had in modern times were on contracts that could be considered value contracts and a lot of that was just Danny Ferry and Bud, to a different point, doing a good job of identifying and signing players. You know, when they got Millsap, was one of the best contracts in the league. He has since re-signed and getting more money. But sometimes that opens the door for players wanting to get that big payday, especially when you see everything that has gone on around them. And I don't think that's going to necessarily be a priority for Millsap, but I'm sure he would like that if the, if that door is open with a team that handles enough of the other stuff positively that it's not just signing up to be a part of a disaster. Absolutely. I mean, you look at a, a city like Denver. He Millsap was born in Louisiana and played high school basketball in Louisiana, but he spent most of his grade school years uh, in Denver. So, you know, that could be a place that... That's fascinating. That, I didn't know that. Yeah, that could be a place. That he, yeah, he told me once, I think he said, uh, you know, his childhood goal was to be the Broncos quarterback. <laughs> so, you know, that could be a place that, that makes sense for him. You know, the Pelicans were, I think, were one of the teams that were interested in him. Does he want to go home in that way? Does he want to play next to Anthony Davis? I mean, maybe that's an appealing situation for him. That would be that would be kind of frightening. I would, I would be excited to see, you know, Millsap, a power forward, Davis at center. That would be something. I would love to see that too. And I'm a big fan of what the Nuggets are doing. And there's a parallel to a couple other teams, including the Celtics, unfortunately for Hawks fans because of Horford, that if a team that has a lot of young assets and picks and all that can add a player through free agency, then it allows them to coalesce some of their other things into a smaller group of players, which theoretically can be better. So if Denver could get Millsap, then you could combine, you know, however they want to see, however they see fit, a couple other players and get a stronger team around him. And both Denver and New Orleans would be awesome with Millsap. And that also ties in with the idea of risk mitigation for the Hawks. So Atlanta lost Al Horford with zero compensation. They were able to get Dwight Howard. They were able to mitigate the damage in that way, but they didn't mitigate the risk because they didn't get anything in compensation. Do you feel that the experience with Horford would make them more open to getting something for Millsap before free agency? Or is it just such a different situation that they'll be open to rolling the dice again? It's hard to say. You know, I don't have a great feel for exactly, you know, what's happening in the front office and things like that. But, you know, I think you saw it at least in the potential of exploring the Millsap trade possibilities. I think you're you you get a little bit of the the blowback from the Horford situation that they wanted to know okay what's out there but at the same time you know i get the feeling that part of it is price you know if 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 they don't feel like the the price is right in terms of what they could fetch in a Millsap deal that they would still back away from it there was kind of a throwaway line in Chris Vivelmore's story about Millsap being off the trade market and he said something to the effect of you know management may have played a role in the decision or something like that. And it was, it was really, really vague, but you know, who knows, maybe, maybe that was something that played into it as well. Certainly could be. And there was also a lot of time for them, for both sides to figure out what they want and what they're looking at. And part of the reason why this is important is that there are options for Millsap through a trade, depending on what he wants to do this summer. There are options that could open up with that that might not be available in the summer. 
for example, the Raptors. That is not why you make a trade. You don't trade a guy as good as Millsap just to be nice and say, hey, oh, if you want to go to Toronto, we're going to give you to Toronto. But that could facilitate something because if, if a player is, uh, open, is open to the idea of re-signing somewhere because it's not like he can agree to an extension with them, that it could open the door for a better return if the Hawks wanted to trade him, and then that changes the calculus. It sure does. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. It, it's really tough to say. I mean, I can't peg Millsap as a, as a player who would want to go to Canada. <laughs> I remember him coming back from the All-Star game that was in Toronto, and I think he made some crack about the weather, and I don't know. <laughs> but we'll see. That is a, a, a great kind of anecdote that also ties in with this incredibly important element and everything, which is that as much as the NBA, you know, we could talk about the structures and we could talk about everything that's going on, the entire framework is built on these personal decisions and personal preferences of a very small number of individuals. And elements like it was really cold there for the All-Star game actually matter. Like that sort of thing is actually really important when you think about this. And various big decisions in the past, I mean, I think weather and a lot of those other elements were part of LeBron going to Miami. And I mean, obviously it was also a really good team and it, it checked a lot of, it checked a lot of other boxes for him and things worked out relatively well. But it matters, you know, that that sort of a thing. And when you're trying to project where a player wants to go, you have to consider what they want in a destination in all capacities because they only get one shot at it. Right. And and Millsap is a tough person to sort of read between the lines with. He's like devastatingly funny, but in this low-key way, you know, he'll he'll slice and dice you without you even knowing it sometimes. And you, 10 seconds later, you'd be like, oh man, he just crushed me. But he's also a quiet guy who kind of, you know, keeps a low profile and, and, and keeps things close to the vest. So in talking about things like that, there aren't that many clues uh, to indicate, you know, what he might want. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. I, I He seems like a, I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I really don't know. But, you know, if you if you were to ask me, I, I think that, you know, if you looked at situations that involve places that he had been before, like, like Denver and New Orleans, I could see him, if I'm just guessing, just, you know, spitballing, I could guess him going to a place like Denver or New Orleans more than a place like Toronto. That makes some sense to me. I, I can could, I could see the logic behind that with the comfort and everything else and, and having a connection with the area because it takes away some of the uncertainty. And when you're an NBA player, you get to see every arena, you get to see every team. And so if he, you know, had a good experience at either of those places or no, maybe he, I don't know, does he ever, do you know if he has any relationship with Anthony Davis? I, you know, I don't really have a good feel on whether or not he has a relationship with Anthony Davis, but I, I do think that he's very close with his brothers. I think some of his brothers live in Atlanta or at least, you know, if they're playing, over, you know, like Elijah is, is playing, you know, pro basketball in different places. But I think he spends his off seasons in Atlanta. You know, he's really close to his mom. And, I, you know, I just I think he's really close and tight with his family. And I'm not sure that he's the type of person who would want to go away on a long term basis. So, you know, I think a situation like Atlanta or New Orleans or maybe even Denver, you know, would be more amenable to him than, than going just someplace new. But that's, you know, again, that's just a random spitballing guess. And I don't know what, whether or not he has a close relationship with Anthony Davis. We have plenty more to discuss, but first a quick word from our friends at Audible. One of the other elements that I wanted to go through with this, especially because I get to get to talk with you about it, is a little bit of a progress report of sorts for various players that are that are in the Hawks. And the place that I want to start, a guy that I was really high on in the draft process and now gets a much greater role, is Dennis Schroeder. How do you think he's looked this year, and do you expect him to get more comfortable in the starting lineup as we move through the rest of the season? I do expect him to 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 get more comfortable as the season goes along. I think that... As I mentioned before, when you look at that 9-2 and two start, a lot of that 9-2 and two start was propelled by a bench unit led by Paul Millsap and Malcolm Delaney. You know, Delaney was fantastic the first three weeks of the season. And, you know, playing him with Millsap, who kind of stabilized the whole bench unit, and then a bunch of bench unit guys that were familiar with each other from previous seasons, that was really the cohesive group that pushed them to that 9-2 and two start. And, you know, Schroeder playing with Howard and playing in a new role, it was a little bit of a struggle for him. 
Now you look at the seven-game winning streak that they're having now, and it's all about Schroeder. He's really been the the best player. He's figured out that rhythm of the Hawks' offense. And you know what's really impressed me is that you know I think it's harder for him than it was for a guy like Jeff Teague because he's trying to run this offense, and the spacing isn't as good as it was two years ago. He's got to put passes in tighter places. And so while he still struggles with some things like feeding Dwight Howard lob passes, he's been really good at getting to the rim. He's been phenomenal as a three-point shooter. I mean, I thought that was one of the biggest question marks for the Hawks this season was, you know, what's going to happen when they run the Schroeder-Howard pick and roll and teams are like, yeah, you go ahead and do that. We're going to back up and see what happens. He's punished teams that go under screens and he's been a very, uh, very efficient three-point shooter. And when you watch his stroke, I think it's, it's been very consistent just in terms of how it looks. There is a lot of variability in Schroeder's three-point shooting success overall. Because he's so I'll go th- I'll just read his percentages because I enjoy that with him. So first year first year he didn't start at all, came off the bench, had had a more limited role, twenty three point eight percent from three, then up to thirty five, then down to thirty two, then now he's at thirty six point seven and could probably get a little bit better from there, but even at that point, that's enough to keep defenses honest. It really is. I think he was showing off a little bit last night. They played the Nets, and it seemed like in the first quarter he hit three or four jump shots, a couple of them being three-pointers, in front of Kenny Atkinson. And, you know, the last couple of years, we, in terms of the Hawks media, we don't get to see that much of practice. We're supposed to see the last 15 minutes of practice, and that's almost universally just a free-throw drill. But what we do get to see sometimes is the vitamins that the team do. And by vitamins, what they do is the Hawks have this thing where they'll bring in players for individual workouts. In fact, I think they're probably doing one today. Where that, you know, one player is going to work on free throws, one player is going to work on, you know, drifting into the corner for corner threes, you know, another player might be working on his floater, things like that. Well, for Schroeder, you know, the last couple of years when you'd see him working on vitamins, a lot of the time it was with current Nets coach Kenny Atkinson. And what they would work on was, you know, footwork in pick and roll plays where his responsibility was to get himself into a jump shot. And you know, this season, I think he's been absolutely terrific at that. And last night, I think he was flashing a little bit, a little bit of his skill to his old mentor. That's great. Another element that he's been better at this year, and I think he can improve over the next couple, it'll take comfort and experience is finishing in, at the rim. He has the he's at 56% this year, which is better than he's ever done. But oh, actually, it's right about the same as his rookie year, but that was a small sample. But when I watch him, I see somebody who, even though they do have reduced spacing this year, that can get a little bit more craft and get a little bit more comfortable with those circumstances and improve meaningfully in that area. Yeah, it was bizarre the first, you know, the first month of the season. I thought he was getting very good looks and missing them. It just it seemed like almost like a mental block. And I'd love to see sort of the splits for his finishing around the rim over the course of the season because I think over the past three weeks you know, you'd see almost like a total transformation because he's taking those, he's getting those good looks, he's getting them at a high volume, and it seems like he's finishing them at a high volume too. But early in the season, it seemed like he was able to create them, and he would just, he would miss some of the easiest shots, and, and it doesn't seem like that of late. Anything else on Schroeder? I, I, the next guy I was thinking that we could talk about is Tim Hardaway, who's been fascinating as a player who's kind of changed his role during the course of a season. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to to Hardaway, he's another puzzle. You know, I mentioned before, you know, what does this summer hold for Kyle Korver? Well, I kind of feel the same way about Tim Hardaway. You know, what is this summer going to be for Tim Hardaway? You know, he's going to be a a restricted free agent. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think he's he's going to be a restricted free agent. Yes. He he's he hasn't really had sort of a marquee role. And that is seems like something that will certainly change now with the Korver trade. I thought that he was terrific on defense last season. And by last season, you know, you have to kind of parse that up a little bit. He was traded to the Hawks. I think he had an underreported wrist injury when he got here at the beginning of last season. And so we were all perplexed the night of the first home game. They're like, yes, Tim Hardaway Jr. is going to be inactive. And, oh, yeah, by the way, he got a contract extension or, you know, whatever it is they do to sort of activate the, the years of the rookie deal. And then, you know, he spent a few weeks kind of feeling his way around the D-League, getting shots up, things like that. And he really didn't get into the Hawks' rotation until he earned Budenholzer's trust on defense. And I thought that he was a fantastic defender last season. This season, I think he's maybe taken a little bit of a step back. But at the same time, 
you know, you look at, at what he's doing, he, he came into this particular season just looking like Superman. You know, he's got this teeny tiny waist. He's got these big shoulders. He's ripped. He doesn't look anything at all like the player who played for the Knicks a couple of seasons ago. I mean, he's just so fit and so explosive. He's getting way more dunks than he ever got before. He's playing above the rim a lot more. And on offense, he brings something that Corver didn't give the Hawks, which is, you know, that shooting threat, but also the ability to kind of pump fake and take it to the rim. His three-point shooting hasn't been good. You know, he has this reputation as a shooter, and he's been fantastic from the right corner. I don't know what it is about the right corner, but he's, I want to say he's made more than 50% of his threes, more than 50% of the attempts that he's taken from the right corner. And he's also used that as a launching pad to sort of pump fake and drive uh, right at the rim for some monster dunks. So that's that seems to be his comfort zone. But then, you know, above the break threes, he's kind of struggled with that a little bit until this last week. I have a lot of trouble figuring out what his value is going to be. You, you mentioned, you know, that he's a restricted free agent. And we have seen perimeter guys in particular that are not clear-cut starters waste away on the vine a little bit. Even last year when everyone was getting paid, Dion Waiters got hurt a lot by being a restricted free agent. And that was even a different circumstance because it wasn't clear that the Thunder were going to match anything that was offered. So you could have given him a fair deal and just said, well, great if we get him, too bad if we don't. With Hardaway, I would expect that assuming the the Hawks still have his rights at the end of the season, that they would be more zealous about matching a reasonable offer than the Thunder, but that could still chill the market to a way, to a way that benefits Atlanta. Right. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how much the development of DeAndre Bembry and Torian Prince affects whatever they expect out of Hardaway. You know, how much do they want Hardaway back? That might depend on on the increased roles that we see from Prince and Bembry going forward now that, that Kyle Korver isn't taking up minutes. And I know that one of the motivations for the Korver trade was that they wanted to open up minutes for Prince and Bembry. But it's funny, in the weeks before the Korver trade, we we saw some of uh, Korver playing power forward. We've seen a lot of Cephalosha from the beginning of the season even playing power forward. And I thought that he was pretty good in that role and that, that would be a way in which the Hawks could still keep Korver but find minutes for, for Prince and Bembry. But I guess they didn't They didn't uh, think that was the case, even though it was very fun watching Korver try to guard Frank Kaminsky. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> What have you seen from the two rookies so far? I mean, obviously it's a small sample, but have you have you noticed anything to say, okay, this is what they'll be able to do as a rotation player or something like that? Let me start with the easier one first, and it's easier because I have to punt a little bit, which is that, you know, I think for DeAndre Bembry, you almost have to say that it's sort of an incomplete picture. I think he's only really played three games for the Hawks where, you know, he wasn't just playing sort of the garbage minutes. There was sort of an unexpected game in Denver where I think Prince did something that maybe the coaching staff wasn't too high on. And so Prince ended up playing like one minute in the first half and then just disappearing for the rest of the game. And all of a sudden, Bembry was playing the minutes that I think were going to be pegged for Prince. And, you know, he played pretty well. He He's kind of an all-around player. You know, he can handle the ball. He can play off the ball. When he's playing off the ball, his strength is is, you know, using screens and making backdoor cuts and things like that. And he can play above the rim because he's really athletic, even though he isn't that big. But he has a good sense of timing for when to cut and making himself available in that way. And he's going to have to work on his jump shot. I don't think that's where it needs to be. But in, in those small glimpses, you know, he, he's looked pretty good. With Prince, you know, I think it's a little bit different. I think his three-point shooting is way ahead of, of, of Bembry's three-point shooting. I think he's enormous. You see him play, and, you know, he, he's kind of like a almost like a power forward and a small forward's body. And I think in terms of size, you could kind of compare him a little bit to Kawhi Leonard. I think the the natural tendency of people who are Hawks fans to say, oh yeah, Torian Prince, he's the new Damari Carroll. And I think that's really really a terrible, unfortunate comparison. (laughs) I I really think he's a lot more versatile than Carroll is. I I think he's going to be able to make a high percentage of his three-point shots. He's going to be somebody who makes a lot more plays with the ball in his hand going towards the rim uh, than Carroll ever was. And, you know, he can still do that while being the type of defender that Carroll was. 
Prince strikes me as a player who can fit in very well with some of the elements that Budenholzer would want in a team in the abstract and presumably will try to ensure that considering he has the power to do this, that will fit in with the players that become a part of this team that are not there right now. So Prince, maybe not, a you know, unless his shot it gets a little bit more reliable, a perfect fit with Dwight and Schroeder. But if they had, if they have shooting at the two and the three or however they see him or with the four, however they want to play Prince, he could work really well with the Hawks in, let's say, two seasons. Right. I think with Prince, one of the reasons that Cephalosha and Korver were power forwards was that they just wanted to keep it simple. When you, when you look at the Hawks system, they kind of separate the two and the three from the four and the five. They kind of treat the two and the three interchangeably. They treat the four and the five interchangeably, but there's this big gap between the three and the four that that's really a separate role. And Korver and Cephalosha had been in the system long enough that they could handle power forward responsibilities and figure out what's going on. The Hawks really haven't used Prince at power forward at all, even though he's he's a big player who at some point in his career might might be capable of handling that. But I haven't figured out what Prince's weaknesses are, really. I mean, you know, he looks good with the ball in his hand. He looks good with the ball not in his hands. He looks like he can shoot. He looks like he can defend. You know, just watching him move around the court, he's this big, athletic, active body that you know, I could see him not only fitting with anything that the Hawks do, but really anything that, that any team would do. I mean, he's the kind of prototype wing for for this era of basketball that I, I think that he just, to put it another way, I think he's really a good fit with, with where the NBA is heading. He is a little bit older, 22, turning 23 this season, but not so old that it's a ridiculous concern or anything like that. And that helps the Hawks because while it's great if a guy is producing the same amount and he's 19 as opposed to when he's 22, it means that he's probably more likely to be able to contribute in the nearer term next season, the season after that. And the Hawks are going to presumably need some players like that because they have a lot of uncertainty on this roster beyond Corver, who's now gone, Millsap, Mike Muscala, I believe, is a free agent after this season. Tabo is a free agent. And so who comes back, who leaves, will dictate some of these roles, while those players also dictate how much the Hawks want to invest in terms of replacements and everything of that nature. Yeah, it's really incredible how many players are going to be free agents. Before before the Corver trade got executed, You know, they had 15 players on their roster, and nine of them were going to be free agents. The only players who weren't going to be free agents uh, were the the three rookies, Prince Bembry and Malcolm Delaney, and then the three players that they signed in the offseason, Schroeder, Bazemore, and Howard, and, and nine, nine free agents. That's that's a lot of free agents. So you're right that you know Prince seems like the kind of player who, who can have a malleable role going forward. I think they'll be able to slot him in a lot of different places. If Millsap were to to leave, whether that is through a trade or through free agency, would Power Forward become their clearest need, or would they maybe try to play Prince there instead? I don't think that they would do that this season. Um, it could be something that over the course of an off season that they could do, you know, for for next year. But I don't think it would be something that they would try to incorporate on the fly this year. He really hasn't gotten enough minutes in the NBA at at a, as a wing. And, you know, I don't think that they would put that responsibility on his shoulders this season, but I could see it happening next season. That distinction, especially assuming the Hawks keep the delineation between twos and threes and fours and fives, will be important because while you can have players straddle any sort of positional line, that's just a choice for the coaching staff of how how stringent it is, it totally affects who they want if they need to get somebody else. And a lot of that is also dependent on availability you know like you you can't say oh we want a power forward if no one's on the board then you can't get one and i'm excited to see how they handle the evaluation component of this with all of the uncertainty because they now get a chance to look at Bembry, they get a chance to look at prince in the context of everything else that's going on and also in the context of two degree camp basemore i mean basemore is the one real continuity in the two through four mix that they can expect will be there long term. Yeah, just kind of hijacking things because these are sort of thoughts going through my head as as you mentioned the things that you mentioned in that last uh, little thing that you said. One is that you mentioned that Prince was older, and I feels like a little bit of a shift 
from what the Hawks have done in previous seasons, I, you know, you always got the feeling that the Hawks maybe didn't value, uh, you know, a 19 year old who would be, let's say a late first round pick. Um, you know, they didn't feel like those kind of players were going to be somebody who could help them during the course of their rookie deal until they got more expensive. And so, you know, you look at what they're doing with, with Bembry and Prince and they're taking a guy who's a little bit older. I think they're taking a shot on those guys being productive at some point during the course of their rookie deals. And then, you know, the other thing, when you talk about the delineation of roles between the two and the three and the four and the five, if you look at the Hawks of two seasons ago, one of the things that really stood out about that team is that, you know, at least in my opinion, Paul Millsap was kind of like the second, I would say point guard, but if you wanted to soften it a little bit, sort of the second playmaker on the floor, you know, if it wasn't going to be uh, Teague making a play that kind of initiated the offense. It was going to be Millsap. And over the last couple of years, they've gotten they've gotten to the point where they're incorporating more wings who can make a play off the dribble, who can function as a playmaking guard or even a point guard. Uh, this season, you look at the players that they have, you know, the rookies, Prince and Bembry, I think are going to be players who are comfortable with the ball in their hands uh, more so than, let's say, Carroll and Corver of two years ago. You look at Baysmore and Hardaway, they have at times played point guard this year. The Hawks really only have two, what you might call true point guards on the roster in Schroeder and Delaney. And Delaney, when he played in Europe, he was really kind of a, a combo guard as well. So they have this collection of wings now who really are more comfortable making a play with the ball in the hands compared to the players that they might have had on the roster a couple of years ago. It's a fascinating point and something worth watching moving forward, just because you want players with complementary skill sets and that everything can fit together. And having players who are comfortable with the ball in their hands certainly opens things up for more of a combo guard like Delaney in various lineups, though, you know, Delaney probably be in the second unit, but that creativity can really help in the second unit as well. Yeah, and they they definitely have used the two point guard look more than they have in previous seasons. I think, you know, they used Schroeder and Teague together last season, but it wasn't terribly successful if you look at the numbers. And I think they really only used it when they were kind of strapped by injuries, when they didn't have a player available on a certain night. You know, I don't think it was their their favor to their choice to use the two-point guard look when they used it prior to this season. This season, I think they're doing it by choice because, you know, one, it's working. And two, you know, other than Schroeder, all the other guards that they have on their roster are kind of combo guards now. Bazemore has gotten to the point where he can do the things with ball in his hand and, you know, Delaney, Hardaway, same sort of thing. So kind of that subtle little shift. And I think, you know, for as Millsap gets older, you know, if he ends up staying, that might make his role a little bit easier in terms of him not necessarily needing to be uh, somebody who can break down another player off the dribble which is, you know, something you wouldn't really want to expect out of a 34-year-old power forward. Certainly. One stat we got back to Millsap that I saw during this while we've been talking is John Schumann tweeted out that, and I checked it and verified it, that the best two-man combination in the league in terms of defensive rating, so how much the opposing team scores per 100 possessions, is Paul Millsap and Dwight Howard, which is incredible considering how this season started. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to write about that sometime in the near future. Like I said, when 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 Budenholzer said that, you know, to to us early in early in the season, late in October, you know, after Millsap and Howard had only played for this fraction of a little bit together, and it hadn't looked that good, kind of just stayed with me, and I've been watching, and and really, it has gotten better and better and better, and they really look like a team that can make an identity out of defense. Uh, that starting lineup. Schroeder and then Cephalosha, Howard, Millsap, you know, there's just not a lot of weak defenders in there and you can slot somebody in next to them. And if, if they can just kind of keep their head above water, that's going to be a five man unit that they can really do things. I'm excited to see what the Hawks do moving forward. But before we do that, is there anything else that you feel like if we're telling the story of the Hawks, especially for a national audience that might be less familiar that we haven't said that you feel like needs to be part of this conversation? Oh, I would just ask you, you know, what do you expect? Again, you know, this goes back to that theme of uncertain summers, guys like Corver and Hardaway, who I have no idea what to expect in terms of what they'll get offered this summer. What do you think is going to be the offer that comes Mike Muscala's way? Oh, <laughs> he's hard because the best value that you would see is a team that I, I don't think anybody's going to see him as a starter right now. 
Sure. But the best value that you could provide is if he is somebody who can capably back up both positions. And in that case, maybe, maybe something in the like two years, seven, eight million a year. But I don't think he's that. I don't think he's going to have that kind of an offer out there, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know what to expect. It's, it's tough to say. You know, early in the season, I thought he looked maybe a little bit better than what he's looked like lately, but that could just be a comparison to to Millsap and Howard really developing because I thought early in the season, the Hawks looked best when they split up Millsap and Howard. And now over the last month, it's been completely the opposite. They've looked their best when Millsap and Howard are out there together. It's a challenge to have like that singular backup because they have to mesh with a lot of different players. And again, that ties in with the idea of uncertainty. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Muscala ends up coming back to the Hawks on a smaller deal because I'm sure he has a lot of comfort with the area, but he owes it to himself to just take the best thing that's available, whatever that ends up being. Yeah, and I think he's a younger guy. You know, I, I don't think he has necessarily the, the same type of roots that a Corver or Millsap would have. And, you know, his his long-term career prospects might not be as good as, oh, okay, they're definitely not going to be as good as Millsap's, right? Because Millsap's a top 20 player in the league. So he really does owe it to himself to, to find out what's the best thing out there and go for it. But I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, you, it's tough to project, you know, what teams might expect out of him. But like you say, I think his ceiling might be player who can back up at two positions and do it really well and, and space the floor. I mean, his his shot mechanics this, this season have been uh, phenomenal. He said over the, over the off season that, um, that he changed his shot, that he changed his release. He worked with uh, shooting coach Ben Sullivan and, and he said he changed his shot to one where he keeps the the ball a little bit more in the middle of his body and uses a release that's a little bit more like Steph Curry's. And, you know, he, he's really been the most consistent three point shooter for the Hawks over the course of the entire season. His, his development has been awfully impressive over the course of time. And the other part that has to be challenging if he were theoretically to sign a shorter term deal with the Hawks is the idea that they're always looking for new talent and you would worry about being not fully replaced, but partially replaced in a way that would hurt his value moving forward, whereas another team might be a little bit more stagnant, and that means that he could have a more stable role. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's an interesting point. It's, it's the downside of uncertainty, but at the same point, if they offered him a reasonable thing, considering how they've played a role in his development, I could see him wanting to stay for that for that reason as well. I do think that, that he could fit with a lot of teams just because he's, you know, he's big and he's been a, a terrific shooter. I he struggled with his shot last season, but you know, two years ago and this year, he's been a remarkable shooter and you know, one of those guys who can kinda kinda flirt with the fifty, forty, ninety, but not qualifying for enough shots. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the fake fifty, forty, ninety. You know, he has that kind of potential. He does. Anything else? I think I think we're pretty close to to covering every base that we could in this. Yeah, I I, I think so. You know, I guess I would ask you, what do you expect out of the Eastern Conference going forward? Just sort of big picture for, for this season. What do you, you know, what do you expect the the playoffs look like? What do you expect the seeding to look like? What do you expect to be the the themes of the postseason? For the East, the biggest theme is I think going to be where the lines of separation are between the teams outside of the top three. To me, the the Cavs and then the Raptors and Celtics, they're kind of little pods. So you have the Cavs. Whether whether or not the Cavs end up with the best record, I pr- don't particularly care. You know, that's not a big, big part of it. And then outside of that, it's not only important in terms of the playoff seating. So you have that group with the Hawks, the Hornets, the Pacers, the Bucks, the Wizards, the Bulls, the Pistons. I think that's about the group. The Knicks can play their way into it if they do a little bit better than they have so far. It's not only important in terms of who faces who in the playoffs and everything like that. But a couple of those franchises have some real uncertainty. I would put the Bucks in there just because they have young guys, the Hawks because they have all the free agents, and the Bulls because they have a lot of free agents too. So how those teams interpret what happens in terms of how they want to move forward is something that I'm really going to be watching intently. And all of those front offices have their own motivations, have their own challenges, and what young guys break out will be exciting too because a lot of a lot of these teams the hawks included have talent that can play a larger role than they have so far so how how that all gets handled my guess is that i i like teams that can defend 
because that is something that can transfer. So my my inclination right now is that the Hawks, Hornets, and Bucks probably separate a little bit. I trust those teams more in that sense, unless the Hawks trade Millsap. Right. And then next up would probably be, I don't know what to feel about the Pistons. Like they, they, they just bother me because usually like I, before the season, I would have just gone, oh yeah, the Pistons are in that group too. They would have replaced the Bucks, but we haven't seen it so far. So we have that, but also will any of these teams, do, like they're not really in the right spot to be buyers in the trade market. Like I don't see Milwaukee, I don't see Indiana like giving up a first round pick to add somebody at this point. They could, you know, if the right offer gets there. So someone's going to make a bet on themselves. Someone's probably going to make a bet against themselves. And I'm excited to see who that is. Yeah, totally getting far afield here. I, I think like the Wizards maybe have the most fixable problem. Like if they were to go and, and secure somebody who could give them a stable backcourt bench player, like yeah. that could really help them and, and bump them up near the Hornets and, and Hawks and, uh, you know, Bucks. I, th- I think that... I think the Wizards could kind of get into that group if they secure a player who could stabilize the backcourt bench. They also have the urgency from their front office to give up <laughs> assets to make that happen. That is true. And they're one of the only teams that does. You know, a lot of these other franchises are sitting there going, eh, it'd be great if we it'd be great if we did well, but at the same point, this isn't the year for us and for the Wizards until Ernie Grunfeld loses his job. It's always the year for the Wizards. Yeah, I could definitely see them uh, making a move in, in that direction. Oh, actually, that leads me into a question for you. So let's say the Hawks keep it pretty close to the same in terms of who they have. No Millsap trade, no nothing like that. Of the teams in the middle of this whole thing, is there somebody that you would really enjoy seeing a playoff series against? I could see uh, a a series between the the Hawks and Wizards being interesting. That would be an interesting matchup. I I think Bradley Beal might pose some problems for the Hawks. He's the kind of player who kind of has the right types of skills to really make the Hawks pay for their aggressiveness on defense. If if they try to blitz pick and rolls and, and overload one side of the court, you know, if the Wizards get comfortable shifting the ball over, he's had some very big nights against the Hawks in the past, and, and I think that would be a tough and interesting playoff series for the Hawks. Defensively, I would love to see how the Hawks handled the Pacers, because Turner is getting a little bit more comfortable stretching the four at the five, which is a challenge for Dwight Howard. And Paul George is just awesome. So they could throw, they have a lot of different defenders they could throw at him. That's a series I would enjoy as well. And then, of course, you have the whole Jeff Teague dynamic. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, You know, it's funny you mentioned Paul George. You know, I think that's, he's the type of player that that the Hawks want to coach Torian Prince into. I, I don't know that he has that same type of scoring capability, but I mean, I think I think that's what you're looking for is that that big, small forward who can kind of do a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's sort of the archetype for what they would want out of him. That's fascinating, and that it's it's a good model to build off of as close as you can get. Yeah, and from the beginning of the season, that's one thing that's fascinated me is that you know I felt like you know at the beginning of the season, or at least once the the preseason was done. You know, the Hawks had five wings. You know, they had Cephalosha, they had Corver, they had Bazemore, Hardaway, and then they had Prince, who looked really terrific in the preseason. And I think that for a player like Prince, a big player who can defend, whose who's strength in the league is really going to be being able to match up with marquee, big, or big small forwards and, and do his thing defensively, I think he's the kind of guy that you wanted to have ready come playoff time. Because, you know, if you're going to play against... Carmelo or Paul George or LeBron or Giannis, you know, you want that kind of forward in your holster with some seasoning so that he's ready for that moment. And I wouldn't have predicted that that Corver would be traded. If you told me that in October, I'd have said, no, you're crazy. That's not how they're going to find Prince some minutes. But but I did think that they were going to have to do something to get Prince ready because I think they want to have him seasoned and experienced and ready for the postseason because that's really the the kind of player that is going to succeed maybe even more in the postseason than he does in the regular season. That makes a lot of sense. And that makes me even more excited to to watch the Hawks as we move forward, because Prince will be a, a figure in all of this now moving forward. Yeah, it should be. It should be fun. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time. Pleasure talking with you. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks again to KL Chouinard for taking the time to come on. You can follow him on Twitter at KLCHOUINARD. You can read him 
at the Atlanta Hawks website, www.hawks.com, and listen to the ATL N29 podcast. Really enjoyed talking with him and enjoy doing these team-specific episodes when I can, particularly when a franchise is really interesting, as the Hawks absolutely are right now. I will bounce between various topics, for those of you who've listened to the show before, over the next couple weeks while we're figuring out where all these teams are. Have some other franchise-specific ones that I'll probably do at some point, and then plenty of other national writers. So really do enjoy having these kinds of fun conversations, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. If you support the show, you can also support it by leaving a rating, leaving a review in whatever podcast player you like. Also, subscribing and downloading every episode really does help. Subscription in particular is useful for a show like Real Jam Radio because the releases are sporadic. So if you subscribe, then you can see it when it comes out and everything like that. It's how I listen to just about every podcast that I enjoy. You can also support the show by checking out our sponsors for this episode. It is Movement Watches, absolutely fantastic watch company, mvmtwatches.com slash real gm 15 percent off your first order including free shipping and free returns and also audible you can go to www.audible.com slash try now get a one month trial subscription with a free audiobook i am listening to the bruce springsteen autobiography born to run right now absolutely fantastic i will admit to not being the biggest fan of his music not meaning i don't like it but meaning i know how big bruce springsteen cans can fans can be and i am not at that level but I absolutely love it. It's a great story. I would highly recommend it. I'm a little less than halfway through it. It's it's long, but it's absolutely excellent. So you can check that out as well. As always, feedback, good, bad, and different. Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com or at Danny LaRue on Twitter. Always have a lot going on there, but do appreciate that. I, I My standard plea or promise is that I read everything and respond when I can. And that is absolutely the truth. If you want more from me in any other form, there's plenty of it. You can listen to me. I do Locked on Warriors. I do the Dunked on Basketball podcast with my friend and podcast partner, Nate Duncan. We're also doing the Twitter NBA show together, which we do one set generally right now of national games a week. And we do live halftime shows and then a post-game show, which is a lot like Dunked on. And also writing for Real GM for The Athletic is where my Warrior stuff is. And then Sporting News. You can check out everything there, lots of fun stuff, and still waiting to get the final text to the CBA. And at that point, I will have a lot more coming out. I just want to see the actual text first. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm